Good morning. My name is Dwayne Stolzfus. I'm chair of the communication department. Welcome to convocation this morning, which is going to be devoted to stories from students who are in academic voice. So all first-year students in a class that we introduced this year, uh, a combination of lit and writing and oral communication now blended into academic voice. And as it happens, we have some excellent storytellers in academic voice this year, and you're going to have a chance to hear seven stories. Three of them are drawn from, from my class, and four of them are drawn from two sections taught by Jessica Baldanzi. We're going to start with the stories from my section, and the three storytellers will be Alex Mossbarger starting, and then Kirsten Bast, followed by Lucas Harnish. And I would say just one word yet about these stories. They are loosely based on moth radio format. And with moth radio, the uh, request of storytellers is that you tell a personal story and that it be a true story. And with that, we'll invite Alex to share his. So there I was. I was holding the last roll of toilet paper. I looked around the property trying to search out a good place to throw it and I found this giant oak tree. It was over 100 feet tall, so I threw it up at it. It was awesome. It unraveled across the branches about halfway up and that was it. We were done. We had completed this awesome toilet papering adventure. And you want to know what made it the best one ever? Is that it was at an early time of 1030. And the family that we toilet papered was awake. They were right inside their front room, completely unaware of what was going on right outside their window. <laughs> I was so proud of myself. We were all so proud of ourselves. I mean, I had been toilet papering so many times, and never in all my times of toilet papering had I ever been caught. I think back to my childhood, and, and man, I had one of those moms that she was just like super wise. She, she had all these lessons that she taught me. And one thing that I specifically remember her saying all the time was that pride cometh before the fall. And that comes from Proverbs 16, 18. She always said this. She said, pride cometh before the fall. Remember, Alex, never forget this, that pride cometh before the fall. So I, I go back to that night, and, and we got done toilet papering, and, and we went back to my car. And as I got back to my car, I opened the door, got in my car, Started it up. It was that nice Chrysler, the soft, soothing Chrysler engine sound that it always is. And I start to drive away. But as I'm, I'm pushing on the pedal to drive away, I sense that something isn't right. My car isn't moving anywhere. And I keep pushing on the pedal more and more. But all that's happening is my tires are just spinning. I was stuck in the ditch. So I was like, oh my gosh, how could this happen? Everything had gone so well. We did this awesome job toilet papering. And now here we are, and I'm stuck in the ditch. So I get out of my car, and I look at it, and it, it looked terrible. I get out, and I had spun my tires so much that I look at the wheel, and it's over six inches into the mud. I walk around to the front of my car, and the whole front bumper was submerged into the ground because I had been spinning my tires so much. It was terrible. I back up to take a wider shot, a wider view of the scene, and my car has 
mud flung all over the side and all over the windows and the hood and the, the windshield from uh, the, tire, the mud that had been flung from the tires that were spinning. So the four of us decided, you know, we came up with a couple plans to try to get it out. We tried pushing it out and we tried to get, take, go into the family's barn and get some two by fours and put them into the tires to get traction, but nothing worked. So finally I called my mom and I asked her, you know, if she had any ideas or if she could help anyway. And she's like, well, did you ask Chris? And Chris is the dad of the family that we toilet papered. I'm like, uh, no, definitely not. I'm not doing that. Definitely want to save that for a last option if possible. So, and then she's like, well, I could call AAA and have them, you know, come and try to get you out. I was like, well, that's not a bad idea. So I, I told her I'd try to get out myself a little longer. And if that didn't work, then I'd call her back and have her call AAA and have them come and get me out. So we tried some more and more, and it was just failed attempt after failed attempt, and we were going tired both physically from trying to push my car out as well as mentally from the multitude of all the failed attempts to get my car out. And uh, then as we're trying stuff, I hear a noise up from the house, and I look up, and coming out of the, the side door of the house from the family was the profile of four individuals, and I saw the vectors, four separate vectors of their flashlights sprayed throughout the property. And I knew that this was, this was it. I had to go up and confront them and explain to them the situation. And, you know, they were good friends of ours and everything, so we had a good laugh about it and everything. But, uh, you know, at this point, really, I was more relieved than anything because they were going to be able to help me, and I was finally going to be able to get out because it was like midnight at this time. And I was pretty tired. I just wanted to get my car out and go home. One of the sons of the family had a four-wheel drive truck, so we backed it up to uh, where my car was at in the ditch. And we took the towing cables to hook them up. And it was really nice because at this time, the, my car and the whole scene was real nicely lit up by the headlights and the red and blue flashing lights of the Ohio Highway State Patrolman that had shown up. <laughs> so, uh, so we get the towing cables hooked up to my car and we're gonna pull it out and I'm like, thank goodness, I'm finally getting my car out of here. But, then what happens is completely unexpected by all of us as we try to pull my car out and my car was so stuck in the mud that instead of that truck pulling my car out, it just broke the towing cables right in two. So it's like, oh my gosh, what? So now I had got caught toilet papering, I've got my car stuck in the ditch, the Ohio Highway State Patrolman's here considering giving me a citation, and now I've caused these nice people's towing cables to be broken. Like what else could go wrong, right? So I call my mom and I'm like, okay, here's what's happened. Just call AAA and have them come and get me out. She's like, okay. So she calls them and then she calls me back. She's like, well, I called AAA, but they said that since your dad's name is the only one that's on our AAA card, that he has to be present at the scene for them to be able to do anything. <laughs> so now to add to that giant list of all these things that I've made happen, I get to add making my dad get up at like 12.30 or 1 in the morning when he had to be up at, for work the next morning just to drive... 45 minutes to watch my car get pulled out of the ditch. <laughs> so finally, in conclusion, the AAA showed up and they got my car out. It was like 2 or 2.30 when they finally got my car out. It was pretty bad. And, you know, I looked back at that, at that experience and, man, that was really embarrassing. That was, like, totally humiliating to have all my friends there and everything that was going on. It was just, like, really embarrassing. But, you know, I learned a lot from that. And I got a lot out of it. The first thing I got is a good story to tell. Uh, it's a funny story to tell people. And it's a good time to reminisce with those friends that we have, you know, when we get together and stuff. And the second thing I got from it is 
But that story really applies a lot to life. You know, because sometimes you get in those situations in life when you have all those things that are going wrong. You just have that giant list of all the things that are going on in your life, and it just seems like they're all bad. And you're asking yourself that question, what else could go wrong? And I think it's important that when you're in those situations to remember that no matter how many bad things you have going on, that God is always with you, and that he always has a plan for what you're going through. And that takes me to a verse out of James. And it comes out of the first chapter of James, starting at verse 2, going through verse 4. It says, My dear brothers and sisters, take pure joy in whatever trials you encounter. For these trials will produce perseverance, and let perseverance run its full course so that you may become mature and complete, not lacking in anything. And I think that that situation applies to this verse because, you know, you just got to remember that no matter how many bad things you're going through, that God's always with you. And the final thing that I got out of it is to think about my mom and to think about the things she told me when I was growing up and to never forget what she told me, that pride cometh before the fall. Thank you. Our teacher is very younger, Isabel said. I had to laugh at how Isabel chose to use her practice sentences. Yes, I said, your teacher is very young. But Isabel and the other students in the intermediate level English class in Spain didn't know how young I really was. They didn't know that I had found the job on Facebook or that I only had a year's worth of teaching experience in Guatemala and a high school diploma. I kept that a secret. I remember the day of my interview at Venania World private English school devoted to teach English as second language. I'm scrambling around the apartment, the tiny apartment, which means three steps maximum in every direction. And then I take the metro so packed that your arms are slammed to their sides. And I'm walking down streets that all look the same to me. And I finally come across the school painted bright pink and green in the north of Madrid. Now, if I were to get this teaching job that I had the interview for, I would have several classes a week, meeting with each group twice a week, with each, each group in their own little age groups. For example, six to seven-year-olds, three to four-year-olds, and adults. Now, I went home after the interview feeling very anxious. If I didn't get this job, I would go back to Guatemala, where I'd been living for the previous two years, to my old students and my barista jobs. Now, as I'm sitting in my favorite Colombian cafe in Madrid, I'm surrounded by quotes written on the walls, written, on, written in Sharpie on framed scrap paper. One says, seize the day or the night if you slept late. And it was then that my cell phone rang. Anna, the director of the school, had finished with all the interviews and wanted to offer me the job. And I was so happy, because I was obviously officially employed and now the teacher of students whose ages vary from 2 to 80. Now at this school we had to teach British English. And I would be going through the flashcards for our lesson and I would come across something that I didn't know how to say in British English. And I would walk over to the English girl's classroom and I'd peek my head into her room and I said, what's this? And she said, ha ha ha. She'd laugh at me every time. She said, that's not a sweater, that's a jumper but it sounded more like jumba. We would have debates before every class, for example, what was a biscuit and what was a cookie. Now, switching to British English is very interesting. Switching from saying, I have blonde hair, to 
I have got blonde hair. Now, over time, I would have some very challenging students. I would have students that would nonstop yell, they would talk, they would break things, they would punch each other in the stomach, or they would just hide under the table shaped like a green jelly bean. Now, the students I taught in Guatemala, they never behaved like this. Even when I had groups of 42 four-year-olds packed into a 20-person-sized classroom, now, in world, I had to figure out how to deal with these students. I would usually go to enthusiasm. I would clap, sing, do a little jig, anything to surprise them into in paying attention to me. And then I would say, okay, great, okay, what's this? Now, the adult classes, they made me very nervous. I had no idea of how to teach students two, three, even four times my age. Now, the unemployment class in Spain was driving everyone to learn English as quickly as possible because the employers favored those with the most English language. I would always start my classes with how everyone's day went in English. My students would tell me about how their day went. They would say things about their spouses, funny stories about their children, even their flamenco dancing performances. Isabel was one of my students who always told me about her three-year-old daughter and what she did over her lunch break. And I taught them everything I could, even when it was English I've never needed to use in my life. For example, my students who were engineers. I, I've never needed the vocabulary to build a hospital or a waste treatment plant. Now, the other, the other teachers at our school, they knew how young I was. And they would always make jokes about how I was lying to them, that I was only 18, and that when I would tell them stories of my past. And every time that I would take one of my students and I would hand them back to their parents, I would smile to myself and I would know that it was my little secret. Even though I expected it, my body was not prepared as I stepped off the plane into the warm, moist air. It was still February, and the foot of snow that I left behind in Bluffton, Ohio, was nothing like the weather of South Africa. Even though I was hungry, I was in no mood for food. The anxiety of being thousands of miles away from home was daunting. But my dad deserved this sabbatical. I could tell he was excited to get away from teaching and do some research of his own. I had no idea what to expect for school. And I was just getting used to junior high back in Bluffton. was not looking forward to starting seventh grade in a foreign country. On the first day at the Seventh-day Adventist primary school, my brothers and I had the attention of the entire school. I wasn't used to being a minority, and we were the only white kids out of the 250 there. I still remember standing in the doorway my teacher explaining, this is Lucas Harnish, and he'll be joining us for the next three months. Now, he's a long way from home in America, so let's do our best to make him feel welcome, and let's use this opportunity to learn from each other. I remember hearing a boy whispering to his friend, America, huh? Isn't that where AIDS came from? Crazy Americans. <laughs> Strike one. I definitely wasn't feeling that welcome. but. I had a choice to make. I had to choose where to sit. I could sit in the front with a boy about my height or in the back with a tall girl. I chose to sit in front. 
As I sat down, the boy introduced herself to me as Gloria. Strike two. Jeez, I thought, I can't even get this right. I could tell it wasn't going to be easy making friends. Well, after a little while, my stomach started to get a little queasy. And any one of my friends who knew me well back home also knew about my family's vegetarian, high-fiber diet and the consequences that sometimes come with that. So normally, back at home, I'd be blamed for any foul-smelling smell, regardless of whether it's my fault or not. But before I knew it, I'd let one slip, and pretty soon the whole class was whooping and hollering and yelling out names of possible suspects. <laughs> pretty soon, the teacher demanded that the person responsible identify themselves. And I was definitely not going to say anything. <laughs> Strike three, I just wanted to get out. Lucky for me, no one questioned the poor American. And some poor kid in the back, named Voyo, was declared guilty. <laughs> Despite his cries of, guys, seriously, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. Well, after fanning out the room, and a couple of long hours, we were finally let out to recess. But again, I had to choose what to do. I saw kids playing games I'd never seen or heard of, and speaking in their native tongue of Gosa. Uh, pretty soon, I, I saw some guys playing soccer, though, and I thought, okay, I could play soccer. This could be, this could be all right. I started to kick around with them. I began to, began to forget my worries and just focus on playing the game. After scoring a goal, I realized I was having a lot of fun. And they began to realize that this stiff American kid could, could hang with their fast-paced game of soccer. Through the beautiful game, I was able to really connect with, with a lot of the kids there. And it took some time, but I, I started to make some good friends. Some friends that I'd even take home with me and would come, come home with me to after school and we'd just go swimming or try playing cricket, play ball tag, or just hang out and do whatever we felt like doing. I ended up having a blast at South Africa, and I was really sad to leave my friends there. In Kosa, Mfuna Gleboso Yesili means either to score a goal or to achieve in something that you want to succeed in. For me, it meant both. I'm Jessica Baldanzi. I'm in the English department. Bless you. <laughs> um, I'm going to keep this short so that all four of my students can take as much time as they need, but I just want to say it's been a privilege to work with the comm department on Academic Voice, and it's also been a privilege to work not just with these four amazing students who you're going to hear from, but with all the students in both sections of my class. So without further ado, you will hear in this order, Obadi Obadi, Tamara Carrington, Nathan Orr, and Alex Long. Thanks. Good morning. About a couple months ago, I had the most intense months of my life. Those months have changed my life drastically. Um, that time is the time where I decided to leave home and go abroad. Uh, before I start, how many of you guys are far from home? You can raise your hand, scream if you want to. How many of you guys miss your mom's food? 
Uh, I was born and raised in Ethiopia, East Africa. Uh, I'm the oldest in my family. And uh, my dad is a, business, uh, a businessman. He currently has a school that he runs, while my mom is a housewife. There's a big tradition in my home country where, where the oldest son gradually takes over the father's business. Well, I had a problem with that. I was never fond of business. I was more interested in the scientific field. I seek new adventures and I wanted to find myself somewhere else. I just felt life was too safe for me at home. So um, one night I was talking to my cousin about this and he told me to come to the US and finish my school here. Uh, that conversation opened many doors for me. And uh, I started researching about it more and more and I started talking about it to other people and started uh, finding schools. So I started applying everywhere and then finally found a school that I wanted to go to and I applied there and I got accepted. Um, so now was the time to tell my parents about this. So I sat both of them down and told them what's been on my mind. After long, long conversations, they finally told me they supported me and they respected my choice. So next was the paperwork. I had to go to the embassy, apply for a visa, get my passport renewed and plan my flight. I also wanted to tour my home country. I never been outside the city much. So I became a tourist in my own country. And um, eventually, the next four months, I spent a lot, uh, a lot of time with my family and friends. But before I realized it, it was my last day at home. So my flight was around 11 a.m. the morning. And on that morning, my mom came to me and announced, meaning in Amharic, the language of my country, uh, come home, uh, come eat breakfast. So once I go to the kitchen, I see a pile of food everywhere, just in the table. One side was pancakes, eggs, and traditional food. And on the other side was like fruits, like grapes, apples. And in the middle was like smoothies. And I never seen this much breakfast in my house before. <laughs> and once I started eating, she tried, she, tried to, uh, like, she tried to feed me everything until I couldn't handle it anymore. So eventually my dad announced that we need to get going soon. And then we started heading to the airport. In the car, I remember staring at the clock just, and then telling myself that this was actually happening and this was actually becoming a reality. And then once I got to the airport and I checked my bags in, and when I was about to say bye to my family one last time, I see my mom wrapped around my dad's arm crying. I knew at that moment I needed to be strong. I knew I needed to tell her that everything was gonna be okay and I had a reason to leave. That image has been so real to me until now. Now here I am in front of you experiencing what I wanted to experience. Thank you. Thank you, Foley. Okay, can you hear me okay? All I had really wanted to do that morning was to rest my eyes for a few moments. I had been staring at a computer screen all day long in tiny little numbers, and I figured I was probably due for a bathroom break. The year was 2006. It was a pretty big year for me. I got married, and I had my first child, and I was working for my parents as a bookkeeper. Um, my dad's shop is, is uh, set up so that his business is in the front and my office was in the front, but then on the back, was my mom's and dad's apartment. 
So I would go there and I'd drop off my son and then I'd go up front and go to work and I would take lots of bathroom breaks <laughs> so that I could go back and kiss my son. So I was in and out of there a lot. That day on my way into the bathroom, my mom stops me. She goes, Tammy, I think you need to read this. I think Landon has autism. And I said, okay. So I took the book in with me to the bathroom and I read it. And I'm sitting there and I'm reading these words and they're swimming in my head, stimming, flapping, animalistic behaviors, throwing feces, institutionalized, catatonic, refrigerator moms. And the pink 1960s tub started to sink into the ground and the gold sink started rushing towards me. I blinked twice and I slammed the book shut. No, 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 that's not my son. We're fine, everything's fine, that's not my son. I finished up and I headed out and I handed the book back to my mom. Thanks mom, but no, that's not Landon. And I pushed the words out of my head and I went back to work. That night I went to go pick up my little boy and I scoop him up into my arms. And I'm hugging him and I'm kissing him and I'm asking him how his day is. Not that he would answer, he was only a couple months, but I still asked. And I noticed that he's not even responded to me. He's not even recognized that I picked him up. He's not even acknowledged my presence. In fact, I'm just a major inconvenience to him flipping the pages of his book. So I held him in tighter to me, and I smiled brighter, and I got out of there. As I'm driving home, I'm trying so hard not to see those words, but there they are again. And there's my little boy in the back seat, and he's ooing, and he's doing this. He loved watching the cars whiz by, and he got really excited. And I'm starting to think, he was kind of a strange baby. He would never sleep in the car, even as an infant, even like on the way home from the hospital. He never fell asleep in the car. Most kids fall asleep in the car. My six-year-old still falls asleep in the car, but he never did. But you know, I didn't really think too much of it. I kind of dismissed it. He didn't smear feces or anything. And you know, I'm a little quirky, so of course my kid's gonna be a little quirky. But that evening, as I'm sitting on the floor, holding a wet child that I've been comforting for the last half hour, and nothing I've done is calming him. His face is bright red from screaming. The little veins in his forehead are popping out. And those words are back there again, catatonic, unresponsive. He was crying because I had been giving him a bath, and I turned the water on to heat up the bathtub. It had gotten a little chilly, and he started screaming and pulling at his ears. It's the worst feeling in the world when you can't do anything to comfort your child, especially when you think that all they would want is to hold, you know, for you to hold them. So again, those words were there, and this time it took a lot of difficulty, but I still pushed them away. That can't be my son. That's not my son. Finally, that evening, as I went by for my usual midnight check, there my little boy was sitting up in bed, ooing and flapping. Landon, what are you doing up? It's so late. Honey, it's after midnight. You should be asleep. And I scoop up my little blonde, blue-eyed boy, and I hold him in my arms. And I take him to the rocking chair, and I sit down, and I start to rock with him. And I sing to him, hush, little baby, don't say a word. Mama's going to buy you a mockingbird. And I'm thinking, and I'm reflecting, and I'm realizing that we had known something was wrong with him. At first, we had thought he was deaf. We would come up behind him, and we would snap our fingers, and we would scream, and we would clap, and we would yell at him, and he wouldn't respond. He wouldn't even flinch, and we took him into the doctor, and we had his hearing tested, and everything seemed to be okay, but they weren't really sure, and then one day, I dropped him off at my mom's house, and as I was heading up to go up to work, she calls me back, and she goes, Tammy, you got to hear this, and I go back, 
And there she is sitting at the kitchen table with my little blue-eyed, blonde-eyed boy. And she goes, listen. And her nasty little dog is scratching its nails up against the screen door. And I'm like, that's a horrible sound. And then my little boy, he giggled for the first time ever. So we knew he wasn't deaf. And so I held my little boy and I rocked with him. And I realized that no, he wasn't deaf, but he wasn't right either. And my mom was right, Landon had autism. some nice stories, Tamara's, Obadi. Let me hear some bad stories, you know, guy who farts, different country in class, you know. <laughs> you know, got stuck in the mud, had to call his dad. You know, so all you guys out there, you're like, you know, whenever I think something's bad, uh, there's some other people out there, man, I'll tell you. So, limited on time, so I'll just make this quick, but I gotta give you the background. My dad, he's Jamaican. My family comes from Jamaica, and I don't know why, but they think it's okay for, you know, throw your kid in the water the deep end, you know, hoping for them to swim. So they give you the choice, you either die or drown, or you live and you learn how to swim. <laughs> so, one of the most important choices of my life, right there. <laughs> so, as you can see, me being here, I chose to swim and live, or float and live, whatever. So, this is fast forward, I'm here in this country, I came here in sixth grade, and I made some friends. And ever since being here, I realized I had a habit of my best friends being white, but yeah, that's, it's okay. So, <laughs> you know, all of my friends and I, me being the only black guy, we're in the backyard, and it's hot, it is hot. We felt like we were in an easy-bake oven with extra batteries. We felt like we are in an actual oven with extra gasoline. So we're, you know, little kids and we're restless, so we run to my mom. No, my friend's mom. No, it was my mom. You know, see here I go messing up the story. But we run to my mom. Hey, mommy, can you take us to the beach? So my mom, she wasn't doing anything, but, you know, she found an excuse to say no. She wasn't, there's no way she was going to be in this hot weather with several kids and God take us to the beach. So, you know, trying to slick her way out of it. No, honey, I gotta, you know, cook and clean, and you want food, don't you? I'm like, yeah, so, you know, hyper little kids, we running. Can you take us to the beach? My friend's mom, she's like, okay, honey, let's go, go get your shorts. So we're all hyper, yeah, 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 whoa! And then, you know, we go and get our shorts. So I ran home. And I got basketball shorts, rule number one. Don't wear basketball shorts when you go swimming. <laughs> all right, so I remember like, being all over the place, take a seat. I remember my shorts being red and yellow. And they were so, you know, basketball shorts, they shiny. And you know, when you put them in the sun, they glisten, you know, reflect and stuff. So I got those, I'm like, yeah, I'm ready. So. I learned how to swim in a rather cool way. So we got into my friend's mom's minivan. You know the old minivans with the cracked up leather seats and in the winter they're super cold. 
And then in the summer, they're super hot, so you feel like you're sitting on coal. You know, like they walk on coal on TV, but you're sitting on it for like an hour. Yeah, so that's what we had to go through, and she didn't have AC, and it was an old raggedy car, and we didn't care. We did, but we're going to the beach. So you know how boys are when they get together, and you know, we're not at that age yet, or a couple months before, like to talk about girls, boast about girls, like, yeah, so we're boasting about stupid stuff. So, you know, me in the background, like, I know how to swim. I know how to swim, and you know, the whole car ride, I'm like, yeah, watch, I'm gonna be like, well, this didn't happen before, but I felt as if I was the Michael Phelps. So, you know, yeah, I can swim, I can swim. And then my friends, they're getting tired of me in the background. Shut up, Nate, shut up. So we get to the beach. We're all excited. And, you know, like you go to the beach, and when you take your shoes off, my feet ashy, I take them off. You know, get on the sand. It's burning hot, but, you know, that nice feeling between your toes is warm. Like you got, like, the dry socks out the dryer. Best feeling ever. So I'm walking, walking, I'm like, yeah, it is time. It's about to go down. So put on my shorts, I'm ready. I go in the water, and the water starts out shallow and walking, walking. It gets deeper, it gets deeper. I'm like, when it gets to this area right here, waist deep, like it's time to swim. So here I am swimming. No, I didn't swim with one arm, but try holding the microphone to your neck without two hands or a hand, so leave me alone. So, you know, I'm swimming, I'm swimming, I'm swimming, I'm swimming, and I got to the deep end. So then I'm looking, the beach that we went to is a beach in Rhode Island, and the beach that we went to, it's known for its waves. So keep that in mind. So I'm in the back, I'm in the deep end, I look at my friends, they look like little ants waving at me, so I'm like, yeah, I can swim, I can swim. No, they weren't waving at me just to wave at me to, you know, acknowledge that I could swim. They were waving at me because there was a wave behind me that was bigger than usual. So, the wave hit me. Boom! You know, I'm flipping in the water and freaking out. So then when I kind of gain composure and I'm up, I'm treading water, the water feels different. <laughs> I'm like, oh, this can't be good. So, I check, no shorts. <laughs> they were gone. And I tried looking for them, I tried looking for them, and I couldn't find them. I, I, you, you, I tried looking for them. I even swam, swam as deep as I can and start, you know. So, ran out of breath and I gave up. I'm like, gosh, darn it, what am I gonna do? So, I signaled frantically, and these questions coming to my mind, I don't have my shorts. I can't walk to the shore because I don't have my shorts. You don't want to see a naked guy walking on the beach. It's not cool. But then again, I can't stay in the water because we're not going to be there forever. So what am I going to do? So I'm like, okay. So I call my friend. His name was Cody. And like, he, his voice was so deep, he sounded like he hit puberty at two. But this is how he sounds. So if you ever hear me at like the campus just talking like this, this is the reason why. Hey, what's up? So... Call him. It takes for him forever. Like, I have my shorts off. I'm naked in the water. He needs to come faster. So he finally comes. He's like, it's a problem. So I'm telling him the story. And my favorite attribute of white people, they get so red. And he was laughing. And he looks like he's a cherry. So when he, finished, when he finishes laughing at me, I want to punch him in his throat. He's like, OK. 
what are we going to do? So it's like, Nate, I have an idea, but you're not going to like it. <laughs> oh, gosh, what's the idea? So then he proposes that I wear his little sister's shorts. His little sister's shorts. All right, let me describe the shorts. I, I went with wearing the shorts. Come on, you're not going to walk on the beach naked. So the shorts were baby blue. They were baby blue and dark blue on the sides. They were about right here. And keep in mind, like sixth grade, I was a chunky boy. I was a chunky boy. I don't, or fluffy. I wasn't chunky, but I was fluffy. But <laughs> I'm a fluffy boy. And the little girl, she's a little girl. So I don't know why he wanted to squeeze me in this girl's shorts. But they were so tight. They were so, so tight. Okay, I got... You gotta tell the story with details. But they were so tight, they looked painted on. They looked painted on. So I'm like, okay, I'm wearing the tight shorts. Everybody looking at me, who's that kid with the booty shorts? <laughs> what is he doing? But the moral of the story is, expect the unexpected and bring backup shorts, because you know, when your shorts come off, I'm gonna be there and I'm gonna laugh at you, <laughs> just like you laughing at me. Alrighty, thank you very much. How are you guys doing today? I'd like to ask you a, a question real quick. How many of you have ever made an excuse in your life? Raise your hand. All of you. I'd, uh, I'd like to talk about an excuse that I made in my life for several years. Um, let me start out by saying about f four years ago, my dad was diagnosed with kidney cancer. Um, it was a 10-pound basketball-sized tumor surrounding his kidney. But when he went in to have surgery, both the kidney and tumor removed successfully. No problems there. They're like, all right. doctor's like, all right, come back in a year. We'll scan you, see if there's anything left. About four to five months later, he starts having vertigo and nausea. We were at the beach. He thought it was just because he was playing in the waves too much. I was like, all right, whatever. You know, a month goes by, and it's still there. Um, he goes to the doctor, gets scanned. It had, the cancer had come back and it was surrounding his sciatic nerve, which is one of the nerves that's important for walking. Um, let me give you a little background on my dad. My dad was an athlete his whole life. He started swimming when he was seven years old um, on the swim team at a club. Uh, he did triathlons. He completed an Ironman, which is you start out by swimming, I think it's like nine to ten miles, get out, you bike over 120, and then you run a marathon. He finished uh, 300 out of 3,000 3, people. This is one of the strongest men I knew. Um, and at this point, there was nothing that could be done. We tried chemotherapy. We tried radiation. All it could do was slow down this progress. I watched this guy who was my hero in life, go from completing an Ironman to limping, to walking with a cane, crutches, a wheelchair, to bedridden to a living vegetable in hospice. And my dad passed away on March 17th of 2009. And I know that nothing will ever fill that void in me. 
excuses. I used my dad's death as an excuse to give up. I decided that life wasn't worth living, and I went into a severe depression. Um, I mean, my hero was gone. You know, what was the point? I let my grades slip, started failing my classes. I, uh, I began to hate my mom. I severely mistreated her and the rest of my family. And I was just, I was a mean person. I was a very mean person, and you did not want to be around me. Um, about nine months after my dad passed, I went to St. Vincent's Stress Center for suicidal thoughts and depression. And let me tell you that a week of hospital food does not help suicidal thoughts. <laughs> but I survived the week of hospital food, and six weeks later, I was done with an intensive outpatient program. It still took me about a year or so before I completely turned around. But I did it. I turned around, I realized that just because my dad's life is over, doesn't mean that mine has to be. And I made the choice that I was going to live every day as if he were watching me to make him proud of who I am and who I will be. I'm, uh, I recently got accepted into a program that 100 people worldwide get accepted into every year to be trained how to be a motivational speaker and a life coach. I didn't think I was going to make it into college, and I made it into here a private college. It's not easy. I'm a tennis player. I'm an athlete. I am so much more than what I thought I was going to be. And I still live every day as if he's right here with me, rooting me on, because I know that somewhere he is. Now let me ask you, what's your excuse? Take charge of your own life and live it every day how you want to live it. Thank you very much. Thanks again to all the speakers. You're now dismissed.